Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 on this Communion Sunday as we turn to God's Word. We're coming to the end of Ephesians chapter 5, but also entering a, a distinct section in Paul's letter. If you were with us last week, you know that last week Paul challenged the Ephesians to examine what was influencing their life and not to be filled or influenced by wine, but with the Holy Spirit. And Paul said that those who were filled with the Holy Spirit would demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit's influence by encouraging one another and praising the Lord, giving thanks to God in everything and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as we turn to the next section, Paul is going to give, spell out more of the details of what does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And today and in the weeks ahead, Paul's particularly going to look at three different relationships within the body of Christ to discuss this idea of submission, relationships that will be transformed by our faith in Christ. And the first relationship he turns to is that of marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife. Now, my plan is to take two weeks to look at this section, verses 22 to 33. My goal today is to take a big picture look at some key aspects of this passage and then to look next week at more of the details. But if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and follow along in your Bibles, let's read verses 22 to 33 together. This is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We know this is your word that you have given to us, and we pray that by your spirit, you would use it in our hearts and our lives today to make us more like you for your sake. Unless we pray in Christ's name, amen. Back in March of 
2020, New York Times columnist David Brooks published an article in The Atlantic magazine with a rather provocative title. The title was, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Now, I'm almost never on Facebook, and I don't think I've posted anything on Facebook in well over eight years, but I happened to be on Facebook last March, and I read this article with interest, and I attempted to send myself the link to the article so I could read it again later, and instead, I accidentally reposted it to my timeline so that all of my avid followers on Facebook saw that for the first time in 10 years, I broke my Facebook silence by declaring... God's plan for the family was a mistake. (laughs) I uh, started getting texts. Did you mean to post this? This doesn't sound like you. Are you serious? Uh, Fortunately, in my Facebook illiteracy, I did find a way to unpost that. But of course, if you've read the article, you know that the title is actually a bit deceiving. The article is not declaring the family a mistake. It is instead a 60-year history of the breakdown of the family in America. This month, pastor, counselor, and seminary professor Dan Zink wrote a lengthy commentary on Brooks's article in which he came to this summary conclusion. He said, what is clear is that the widespread fragmentation of the family in America was due mostly to the relationship failure between husbands and wives. And I think that shouldn't be a surprise to us, should us? From the beginning in Genesis, we read that a marriage is the foundation of each new family, and it should not surprise us that the breakdown of marriage would be sure to destabilize families in America. And because marriage is central to God's plan for the world, it should also not surprise us that marriage would be both impacted by the fall as sin entered the world, but then also redeemed and restored by Christ's salvation and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And in this text, in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us what is perhaps the most detailed description that we have in Scripture of what God calls His redeemed people to do and how to live out their marriages. Now, most often when I hear Ephesians 5 discussed, the emphasis is typically on the different instructions that Paul gives to husbands and wives, and that is very important. And we're going to spend next week looking at those different instructions. But this passage also tells us much that is common to husbands and wives in marriage. It tells us much about the nature of marriage itself and much that's shared by God's calling between husbands and wives. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. So let's begin by looking at the nature of the marriage relationship. Because this passage highlights one thing again and again and again. That from the beginning, God has specifically modeled the relationship between a husband and wife after the relationship between Christ and the church. So much so that Paul can conclude in verse 31 when he references Genesis 2. He quotes Genesis 2.24 there. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two can become one flesh. But then Paul concludes, when I read this verse... This verse is actually telling us something about Christ and the church. That's how closely God intends the marriage relationship to mirror 
the relationship between Christ and his church. In fact, every comment that Paul makes to both wives and husbands is shaped entirely by the nature of the marriage relationship, by this expectation that husbands and wives in their marriage are to reflect, are to mirror, are to model the relationship between Christ and the church. You see that in verses 22 to 24 when Paul addresses wives. Wives, he says, are called to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And why are they to do that? Because God has called the husband to be the head of the wife in order to be a picture of Christ as the head of the church. Husbands then are called to love their wives, to nourish and cherish their wives as their own bodies. And why are they called to do that? Because God has called them to do that, to image Christ to show how he nourishes and cherishes the church as his body. And so right up front, it's so important for us to see that when God calls husbands and wives to a particular role in this marriage relationship, he's not doing it because one is better than the other or one's personality lends himself to this or that. He's doing it for one particular reason. God is calling husbands and wives to model, to live out a, a picture of Christ and the church. And it's that purpose that shapes what God calls them to do. It's a matter of calling. Now, Paul's words may raise a host of questions in our minds about, well, what does it mean for the wife to submit? What does that look like? What does it mean for the husband to sacrificially love? And we'll focus on the details of that next week. Don't worry, I'm not brushing over the details of that. But here at the beginning, it's so crucial that we understand what is at stake in this passage. At stake in this passage is a particular calling that God has given to each marriage. A calling that God gives to husbands and wives. And a calling that leads husbands and wives to be able to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. And Kevin DeYoung, when he writes about marriage, puts it this way. He says, if there is no distinction in how we relate to one another as husbands and wives... If there is no ordering, no self-sacrificing headship, no joyful submission, if those are leveled, then we are left with a picture that looks like Christ and Christ, or the church and the church. But God's plan is for the watching world to look at a husband and a wife and to get a picture of the beauty that is the relationship between Christ and his church. In gender distinction, in God's pattern and calling for marriage, therefore, nothing less than God's full glory is at stake. That's what's at stake in the nature of marriage, which is rooted in God's calling. Now, given the fact that the glory of God and a picture of Christ in His church is at stake in marriage, it is probably not surprising to discover that the drama of creation, fall, and redemption is played out in the marriage relationship. Paul repeatedly grounds this calling, this marriage pattern of husbands leading with self-sacrificial love and wives supporting with joyful submission in the creation story. He does so here in Ephesians 5, looking back to Genesis chapter 2. He does so even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about this pattern and then says, for Adam was not made to be Eve's helper, but Eve to be Adam's. God created this world this way so that man and woman could model his plan, Christ's marriage to his redeemed people. It starts in creation. 
But then sin, when fall and sin enter the world, sin and the curse strike at this very relationship. After Eve takes the initiative in eating the fruit and Adam stands passively by and both of them fail in the calling that God had given them, God declares that Eve's desire will be against her husband, but he will rule over her. And as a result of this curse, it should grieve us, but not surprise us. That men have often perverted their responsibility with authority, force, and oppression. And women have often sought to take control. And that both have perverted their roles by selfishly pursuing their own good rather than mutually sacrificing for one another. This is the result of the distortion that sin brings into the picture that God created. Nor should it be surprising that even when we have put our faith in Christ, these tendencies and desires still rear their heads in our lives just like sin does in so many other areas. And yet despite the ongoing marks of sin in our hearts and lives, in Christ God has acted to recreate his people in his likeness. In Christ God's spirit is changing our hearts and enabling us more and more to live in humble holiness, to pursue God's plan for us that beauty and flourishing and and peace might again be a reality in marriage as wives submit to husbands and husbands nourish and care for their wives as a testimony to the gospel, to the relationship of Christ and the church that God created it to be. And our redemption in Christ, God is restoring our ability to make marriage what he had intended. After all, that is the nature of marriage, to model Christ in the church. So I want us to see that first, above all, in this passage. But the second thing I want us to see in this passage is that husbands and wives, as fellow image bearers of God, made with equal worth and dignity, have a calling here that is first and foremost a joint and shared calling. Now again, I think it's important to note that that's going to play out in different ways. We'll look at the differences next week. But the primary emphasis of this calling is a joint calling that husband and wives have together to image the gospel of Christ's relationship with the church. That's a calling husbands and wives share. After all, marriage is a one flesh union. And in that sense, marriage is much like the church. We're told that the church is one body. And within that one body of the church, God gifts and calls different people to play different roles. Some play roles of pastor or elder. And Paul will say later, we should submit to those in authority over us. But that's within a one body relationship. And Paul tells us that whether you're pastor or elder, or whether you're the generous giver or the compassionate servant or the Sunday school teacher, whatever role God calls you to, whatever gifting God has given you, neither is better than another. Some in Corinth thought some were better than another, and Paul says, no, that's not the case. Everyone is vital to the church functioning as a healthy body, and we are to faithfully steward whatever gift and place God has given us within that one body of the church, so that the church might grow as God intends us. And it's the same way in marriage. In marriage, you have two people becoming one flesh or one body. And the husband and wife who are created and called differently by God, each play an equally important role within marriage. So that together, the husband and wife 
might fulfill their joint purpose, their joint calling to model Christ and the church. In other words, this passage tells us that marriage is not primarily two different callings. Husbands, you go do this. Wives, you go do this. It's primarily one shared calling to image Christ in the church that will be played out in two different callings, which we'll look at next week. But I want us to see that this is a common goal, a common calling that husbands and wives have to image the gospel. And not only are husbands and wives working together to fulfill this shared calling, but at their core, God's callings to husbands and wives will require the same thing. Sometimes when we think of leadership and submission in the context of authority, we can begin to think that, well, maybe one role then has to sacrifice more or be more restricted, and the other gets to have more freedom and opportunity. But that's not the case with the marriage relationship, because God makes it clear in this passage that when God issues this call to husbands and wives to image Him, both, at their core, are called to die to themselves. The dying to themselves is a common calling to both wives and husbands. Husbands, you see, are told to do this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. See, when a husband marries his wife, he gives up living for himself and now commits to living for her sake. That certainly involves the daily willingness to give up our desires and goals to love, care, and serve our wives. Author and pastor Paul Miller told a story of how this dying to himself for the sake of his life was brought home to him through a sheep named Ed. The Miller family lived in Philadelphia for many years, but then had the opportunity to move to the outer suburbs and fulfill his wife's dream of owning animals. And they were shortly the proud owners of four pygmy goats and a sheep named Ed. Well, one winter, a blizzard hit and dumped well over a foot of snow outside of Philadelphia. And in preparation, Paul had called a local sheep farmer to ask, you know, how do blizzards affect sheep? What do we need to do to care for this? And he ensured him six inches of wool on the sheep are going to be more than enough to keep him warm. He'll be just fine. But there they are on Saturday night, well past 10 p.m., with Paul tucked cozily under the covers, drifting off to sleep. And his wife says, Paul, I'm worried about Ed. Will you get up and go outside and check on Ed? And Paul, of course, starts to bring his arsenal of reasons for why Ed is just fine, but then realized that this really wasn't about Ed. It was about caring for his wife. And so he got out of bed, dressed for the blizzard, and went to check on the sheep. And Paul says, Ed was just fine. But after that, so was his wife, who was able to sleep well. It was a moment of dying to himself to care for his wife. But I think we need to think carefully about Christ's calling. Because if we do so, we will quickly realize that Christ was not just called to some moments of self-sacrifice. No, Christ's whole purpose was self-sacrifice. Christ's task, Christ's calling from beginning to end was to do all that he did in life and in death to give his life for the sake of the church, to redeem her and sanctify her, to be his bride who would be one body with him. And in similar ways, husbands, 
We are not called just to make certain sacrificial decisions when necessary for the sake of our marriage. We are called to something far higher than that. Husbands, we are called to die to ourselves as our purpose in life calling. Husbands are to lead our wives to nourish and to care for them just as Christ. And that means a life purpose of dying to ourselves for her sake. In the same way, wives are called to die to themselves for the sake of their husbands. You might say, well, I don't see that exactly in the text, but remember, wives are picturing the church and Christ. And what are we called to do in order to put our faith in Christ and become His? We die to ourselves. That's what repentance is. That's how Paul talks about it. Maybe you think of Philippians 3 where Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ. Or maybe Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul talks about the repentance and coming to Christ as a death to ourselves to become his. And in a similar way, when a woman marries her husband, she dies to living her own life and commits to following her husband. She too, on a daily basis, makes specific decisions to die to herself for her husband's sake. But she too also is committed to a purpose and pattern in life that can be summarized as dying to herself to live for him. And so while there is asymmetry, while there is different but complementary ways in which they die, and we'll see that more again next week, both husband and wife at root are called to the same thing, to die to themselves for the sake of the other so that they might model Christ and the church. And there is tremendous security, freedom, and beauty in a relationship that's defined by mutual self-dying for the sake of the other. And so the main point that I hope we come away with this morning is that the nature of marriage is rooted in its goal to image the relationship between Christ and the church. And that as such, husbands and wives are called to one shared calling, to die to themselves for the sake of the other that they might fulfill this purpose in which God has called them. They do that in specific ways, and we'll see that next week. But I want us to hear that joint calling this morning. And as we end, I think there are two applications for us all as we reflect on this nature and calling that God has for marriage. To begin, if marriage is intended to be God's model and picture for Christ and the church, then marriage should be honored and protected with every effort that we have. God has made marriage to be a picture to the world of His salvation of His people. And we ought to protect it, honor it, with every effort we have. Now I realize that in the face of the ongoing rebellion of sin and its impact on us and our relationships, that there are times when the Bible tells us that sin does shatter the marriage relationship. Times that the church needs to step in and protect the oppressed. But as we read about the priority that God places on marriage, then we need to acknowledge that it is also easy for us, even in the church, to pursue what is easier, happier, more comfortable at times than it is to put the same priority on marriage that God does. And so for those of us in marriage, continue to foster your relationship with your spouse, freely and unconditionally giving yourself in self-dying love and submission and obedience to God, seeing your marriage for what it is, 
your opportunity to obey God's calling to image Christ in the church. And for those who are unmarried, the calling to you is also to honor marriage for what it is. God's idea, a beautiful picture of his love and joyful blessing for his people. We've read many sources recently that have noted an increasing pessimism and wariness about marriage in our society. Many who see marriage as, as something that is just hard and rarely works out and something that I should keep at arm's length. I was struck a couple of years ago when my younger sister, before her wedding, said, you know, everyone seems to tell me how hard marriage is going to be, but no one seems to have anything to say about the goodness of marriage. I think that's what we slip into sometimes. But marriage is God's idea. Of course it's hard anytime two sinners have to live with each other and die to one another. Dying to ourselves is hard. But this marriage relationship was God's idea. He has redeemed us and given us His Spirit. And the result is a thing of beauty that glorifies Him. So whether married or unmarried, we ought to honor marriage and seek to protect it with all of our efforts. But finally, I want to encourage each one of us to exercise the muscles of self-dying on a daily basis and to find our purpose and our joy and our fulfillment in dying to ourselves for the sake of others. This is true, of course, of the marriage relationship, but this is a calling for all of us. I began today by mentioning David Brooks' article on the family, but Brooks has also written a book called The Second Mountain, where he calls us to live by inverse logic. What is inverse logic? He says, well, it's a life that recognizes that I possess only when I give, that I am strongest only when I give myself to something greater. At the end of the day, says Brooks, there is the brutal grinding effort of surrendering my ego to the altar of marriage, giving up myself and my desires for the sake of the larger union. Well, that's very biblical. It's a great picture of self-dying love. Maybe it sounds scary to live this kind of self-dying life, but if so, it's probably because we've soaked in the voices of our age which tell us that marriage should fulfill us. It should help us get what we want. And I think Kevin DeYoung again was right when he said the Christian approach to marriage is not about meeting my needs, meeting her needs. It's about my opportunity to honor Christ and her opportunity to honor Christ. That is the essence of Christian marriage. It's dying to ourselves for the sake of one another. It's pointing us back to Christ's call to live like him. And for those who are not married, this is not just an application for married people. For every single one of us, how can we best prepare for a God-glorifying marriage? How can we best live a Christ-like life now? Well, the answer is the same for you also. By dying to yourself to live for the sake of others. The essence of dying to self is giving up personal gain for the sake of another. That may mean giving up time with the popular kids to welcome and include those on the margins. It may mean giving up rest to serve this kingdom of God. It may mean giving sacrificially to missions and the church. But whatever dying to ourselves looks like, it is not a scary vision, but a beautiful one. Not a repulsive one, but an attractive one. Because it's God's calling and it's what Christ did for us first. 
He gave himself up, dying on the cross for my sake, to take away the penalty for my sin if I come to him in faith. That's what we remember this morning as we come to the Lord's table. We remember that just like Christ, whose death to himself led to great beauty, glory, and resurrection joy as he redeemed and sanctified his bride for himself, so dying to ourselves will lead to great joy and obedience. As we obey God and as we find fellowship, love, unity, and mutual flourishing in marriage, when we follow God's plan and God's calling to live it out as he intended for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this plan for marriage that was your idea from the beginning of creation. That you would call husbands and wives to live according to a particular pattern. And the reason for that pattern was that together they might demonstrate to the world what you were doing through your son, the relationship between Christ and the church. Father, as husbands and wives, may we obey your calling and live out what you have given us to do to the glory of your name. And as your people, may we all die to ourselves that we might live Christ-like lives for your sake. We ask for the strength to do this by your spirit for the sake of Jesus. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.